Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. On today's show, the Feminist Writers' Festival kicks off next month, but has set us all some much-needed homework before then. FWF 2020 offers two streams this year, Thinkins, where thinkers on major feminist topics offer thoughtful essays to be read before a live panel event on the 14th of November, and FWF Talks, a podcast conversation series coming out in the lead-up to the day of live events. FWF director Nikki Anderson joins me to talk about it all later in the hour. And soon, Robert Desai, novelist, essayist, translator, broadcaster, says these days he has gone off story, instead making writerly sorties designed to guide himself and the reader home, meditating on growing old, sex, loneliness, dying, and the importance of an interior life. Robert Desai will join me shortly to talk about his book, The Time of Our Lives, meandering across Java, Berlin, Hobart, ideas and conversations with friends. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. I write essays and reflections, not narratives. Having reached my end days, why would I? Even when I decide to write about the experience of having a heart attack on a city street far from home, I wrote it as a collection of reflections on what days are for, sorties these days rather than stories, and then I come home. That's an extract from The Time of Our Lives, Growing Older Well by Robert Desai, who has a career ranging from novelist, essayist and translator, among many, many other things, and now meanders through ideas on ageing, death, sex, loneliness and the importance of a rich interior life in his uh, recent book. Robert Desai joins me now on the line to talk about uh, this book and his writing. Robert, welcome to Backstory. Thank you, Mel. Pleased to be here. Now, this book is, um, look, I should firstly foreground this uh, by saying it's such a pleasure to be able to talk to someone who has themselves uh, been a broadcaster speaking about books and writing, as well as obviously being a writer, translator, novelist, essayist, such a, a huge range of talents. I don't, of course feel that I have a huge range of talents. Nobody ever does. I always feel I'm a bit of an imposter. But yes, at one time I did have a book program. Some of your listeners might remember it. Some of your older listeners on the ABC, Books and Writing. So I know what you're feeling right now talking to a writer. Well, it's such an enormously privileged experience to be able to talk to a writer about their craft and about what goes into it. And one of the things I really do enjoy about your writing, Robert, is that you talk about this this kind of the art of writing while doing it um you're sort of showing your hand um at the same time as drawing the reader into it um this book uh very much kind of 
you know, I, I, I kind of think of it as like a kind of flaneur's sort of um, dialogue, I guess, where you're, you're winding in ideas and thoughts and things you've read and conversations you've had, as well as a travelogue, which, uh, which is kind of the basis for, um, for all of this. Can you talk about uh, where this book came from? Well, the very first sentence to occur to me was the sentence, Rita fell over again today. That came to me about two years ago, I suppose, perhaps even a little longer. It was when my partner's mother, Rita, fell over and was taken eventually to an old age facility, care facility, where about six months later she died. That was the first sentence. And so out of that incident, out of seeing her fall over and watch what happened next as she was taken away from home and then gradually fell apart. That, 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 that's what made me want to write. Why does anyone want to write? You want to write in order to shake the kaleidoscope, really. I think that's what it is. Everyone's got lots of little colored pieces. You've got them, I've got them. The man I'm watching now walking along the street with his dog across the road from me has got them. We've all got them. But some of us deal with this huge array of brightly coloured pieces by shaking the kaleidoscope and getting this result, others by shaking it and getting another result. I get writing and I shake and shake and shake until I like the pattern I'm seeing. That's how it works for me. Yeah, I, I, in fact, you speak how you write. It's it's like I I really feel like I'm seeing the the kind of kaleidoscope of your life when I'm when I'm reading this because your you know place is only part of what it is that you're absorbing. Um, it's wound all of these ideas are bubbling around um, each of the the kind of vignettes that you paint. Um, the story of Rita as she you know uh, becomes um, I suppose moves towards death and um, and languishes in this nursing home is sort of really punctuating um, this quite colourful sort of travelogue where you're going from Java to um, Berlin back home to Hobart. All of these things kind of are wound in together in this meditation on all of the colours of life as they sort of wind towards a conclusion. I, I really find this such a such an interesting approach to things, especially what you know the excerpt that I've opened with which is this idea that you've you've raised that actually you're no longer writing complete stories. You're just, you know, you're writing sorties, these little outings that are then drawing people back home. Can you speak to that a little bit? Well, I'm not going anywhere, you see, Mel. When we're younger, we think we're going somewhere. And we have to think that because we have to buy a house. Somebody's livelihood depends on us buying a house. We have to buy um, a car and we have to... I don't mean, no, do all the other things people do in order to thrust forward. When you get to my age, you're not thrusting anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. So I can afford to sit and make sorties. So that's what I do. I make a sortie to Berlin. I make a sortie to Java. Of course, I spend quite a lot of time in Java, where I have conversations. What else is worth doing in life? I suppose bird watching or would-be things that are worth doing, but not very many things. Friendship is the great thing. The Greeks said it 2,500 years ago. Stop thinking about death. Think about friends. Think about what makes friends. Think about what would make you a good friend, because 
there's no point in looking for friends if you're not a good friend yourself, if you're not worth anyone else being friends with. And so I have conversations basically with women about these things. Did it bother you, by the way, that almost everyone I talk to is a woman? It absolutely did not bother me <laughs> one bit. I thought that I thought it was wonderful, actually, the conversations that you had because you really you're allowing these conversations to to breathe uh, too. That actually um, you're floating your ideas and your um, you know slightly wry way of looking at the world, um, but allowing other people their contrasts. Um, I think there's one one section where you talk about uh, studying Indonesian and how you've sort of found that in in your time now, you find yourself going deeper rather than outward. Um, you know, rather than expanding, you're going in deep. Um, whereas your friend is talking about, you know, going off to a climate rally and really being engaged politically with the world. And you sort of, you you talk about these ideas, the differences between um, areas that people live in or ideas that people have. And um, the openness to that in these dialogues is really uh, one of the delights of the book. Well, I'm pleased that you felt that. I try not to, how can I put it? I, I, I'm not actually preaching any particular philosophy of life. I suppose the only thing I'm preaching is look after your inner life. Look after the dance, perform the dance that is going on in your mind, inside you. I mean, we say inside you, not quite sure what we mean by that. Perform the dance choreograph it over and over again, let it root itself in something much bigger than you are, something much deeper. And that's why the book opens with a dance, a sort of calisthenics class, really, to the rhythms of Voulez-vous coucher avec moi, a very erotic song in Java, in the gardens of the hotel I'm staying at in Java, an actual hotel. You can visit it when regulations change. And it ends with a dance. It ends with a classical Javanese dance close to the palace. It's a, a pavilion owned by the palace where children are learning to dance classical Indonesian dancing, which has very, very ancient roots, pre-Islamic roots. And so I'm really talking about the discipline of the dance, which should also be playful. It's the combination of the two things that is difficult. We're all quite good at play, probably, and can be quite good at discipline. It's combining the two. And so the great image, I would say, is the image of the tango in this book, which is something that I perform at my gay ballroom dancing class <laughs> here in Hobart. Who would have thought in Hobart we would have such a thing? But things surprise you, life surprises you. Yeah. The tango is the wonderful combination of those two things. And if you think about the tango, you have schooling, you have great discipline. Every finger, every fingernail has its right place in the dance, but it is also playful, it is erotic, it is flirtatious, it is playing with the woman that you're dancing with or the man that you're dancing with. And that is, I think, the image that I hold to all the way through the book, even though I may not mention it, because without an inner life, as you grow older... May as well be dead, really. It's a really interesting uh, topic. This this idea you keep returning to of the inner life, and um, I suppose when you first visit uh, or describe visiting Rita uh, in the 
in the kind of nursing home, you talk about how you feel, you feel she doesn't have an interior life and then you catch yourself uh, later in the book and sort of say, is that a fair thing to have said about someone? I, I kind of love these, these moments where you're, um, you know, you're really, you're not just laying out truths ever. You're actually learning on the page or you're exploring things on the page or you're allowing your faulty narrator self to uh, to come to different conclusions as you travel throughout the book. Was this a deliberate kind of unravelling or have you allowed yourself um, something of that? Um, because these, these are obviously very uh, well-managed um, pieces of writing. So I can only imagine that these, these were intentional disclosures as you go throughout the book. Well, I suppose they're intentional. I think a better word for me, from my perspective, would be uh, where. I'm aware that I'm doing it. I'm aware of the power of the narrator who isn't quite sure what he or she thinks. I, th- I believe that that is the kind of narrator that engages the reader. You see, I am not an academic. Academics have a different job. They're there to, well, usually build a kind of barbed wire fence around themselves and say, I own this territory. Here are the rules inside this territory. Here are the facts about this territory. Don't contradict me because I've got footnotes. Well, that's the opposite of what I do. I've been an academic. I know how to play that game. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to say to people, come and join me. We'll sit here. We'll watch what's going on and we'll have a little discussion. And in fact, in the book, if you pay close attention, you'll see that there are two voices. When I'm talking to these women, I'm much more hesitant. They disagree with me, or I say, can that be true? If they say something about beauty or about goodness or about sex or about life in general. When it's just me talking, I get a little more shouty. Uh, When I'm talking about religion or about death, I get a, a bit more thumpy and try to put my point a bit more aggressively. There were two voices, really. Mm. But I think as I get older, I am pleased to acknowledge that the best kind of writing probably comes from letting someone who sees the world a little differently, not totally differently, but may have his or her say, and usually it's her say in this book. And that wasn't deliberate, by the way. It just sort of turned out when I finished the book, I thought, goodness me, they're all women. I think it's great. Uh, if you've just joined us, uh, you're listening to Backstory and Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author Robert Desai uh, about his latest book, uh, The Time of Our Lives, Growing Older. Well, uh, the, it would, the title kind of seems like uh, you're, um, you're kind of giving advice, uh, but, and you do, but also you contradict that advice or you allow others to contradict that advice. And it is very much a book um, of a thinker's life. Uh, you're really putting things out there. Uh, there's a couple of things. I think there's one where you, you talk about um, really having a sense of, uh, of listing things that you believe or that you think um, and that, you know, can make you happy. Can you talk to that a little bit? You sort of, you make quite a controversial suggestion that to make lists like this under the age of 40 um, is evidence of having a problem, but like uh, it's necessary after the age of 40. I thought that was quite funny. Yes, well, after the age of 40, of course, you can't usually remember what you thought yesterday, and certainly by the time you get to my age. So it's important to write all these things down. I mean, it's one of the advantages of being older, that you can't remember what you watched on Netflix last week, and you can watch it again, you see, and still enjoy it as if you'd never seen it before. 
I think that at the heart of this book, apart from this notion of the inner light, is the notion of happiness. I mean, it's the great theme at any time. The Greeks wrote about it, the Romans wrote about it, everyone writes about it. David Malouf's written about it. Being happy, and I distinguish between being happy and being contented. And I feel that contentment, which is about as much as one might expect when one is older, really, kind of rich, deep contentment, I think it's important to write down what makes you contented. Happiness is a bit unpredictable. Happiness comes in bursts, I feel. It's different from contentment. Happiness involves a kind of jubilation, which I'm not very good at. I have moments of it, of course, as I say, when I watch uh, Freddie Mercury singing Mama, I feel jubilant. Uh, Sometimes when I'm listening to Beethoven, I suppose, or Prokofiev, I feel a kind of joy that isn't just a mere contentment or happiness. But I think it's important to write it down. I mean, I find, and I know this now, and I'm happy that it's so, I find learning languages immensely pleasurable for no particular reason. It gets me nowhere. Speaking Indonesian gets me nowhere. Any three-year-old in Indonesia speaks Indonesian better than I do. It gives me joy. So I do it. Sex gives me joy. I think sex is fantastic, and I don't understand why we have this new prudery about sex. Sex is great fun, unless it isn't, of course, which is the same as eating or driving a car or anything else. I don't see why everybody is so nervous about sex, and so... Well, what would you say? So uh, ambivalent about sex. Sex is fabulous, unless it isn't. Obviously, that's a cliche. But I think it's great fun and we should enjoy it in whatever way pleases us. It doesn't have to involve all the things that involved when we were 18. In fact, that probably isn't necessary. Although a couple of women in my book do. <laughs> yes, you do, you do mention that, which is great. Yeah, this idea well, of um, of both the kind of, you know, changing role of sex in people's lives, you know, to, for some, um, you know, that that's not necessarily as much of a focus or as much of a possibility, but for others it very much remains so until the very end. Um, you also talk about this uh, this idea of play. Um, you say, I'm not a child in a hundred ways, I'm not a child, uh, but yet you are a child still in terms of this attitude that you have to playfulness. And I feel like this is a great strength that you that you kind of show again and again, that you have this, this engagement with life. Um, that you're constantly, I feel, even if you're staying still, you're going on some kind of sortie um, to allow the mind to sort of, to, to you know, enjoy encounters or, or feel things. Is this something that you, you continue to experience now, even though we are somewhat grounded, despite the fact that you're in Tasmania and have more freedom than us over here in Melbourne? Oh, well, I do, Mel. I mean, I can still do it online. I mean, I'm just slowly learning how to Zoom, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and so, yes, I can. I feel that the word child is uh, a little, uh, what is the right word, multivalent. I mean, it means several things. I'm not childlike in the sense that I'm not unknowing. I do know things. I haven't lived for 75 years, 76, actually, without learning a few things. So I'm not childlike in that sense. I'm not totally innocent in a childlike sense, not really, which is why in the book I come to like much more the word kid. I think I am a kid, really, quite often. 
too often for my own dignity, probably. I think it's something that gay men are particularly good at, by the way. It is because to be a kid, you have to have a diminished sense of responsibility a little bit. If you've got five children and uh, one wife and one ex-wife who depend on you, for whom you are responsible, it's difficult to be a kid for too many hours a day. It doesn't um, provide the kind of um, income and support that all these people are going to need. You've got to be a bit more serious about your own life. If you don't, which many gay men do not have, all these people that you feel responsible to, you can afford to be a kid hours and hours every day. And you can accept the fact that you are many people. Sometimes I think in our terribly pious society, it's one of the great disappointments for me how pious our society has become. It's a very pious society. People think that you should be consistent all the time, that if on the one hand you like to play and on the other hand you vote liberal, there is something wrong with you. I don't vote liberal as it happens, but I think that you can accommodate different selves and you shouldn't worry about that too much. Let them talk to each other. See what they have to say to each other. And you might be surprised how much comes out of that conversation between selves, which the world would say should not live in such close proximity together. Have I got off the subject? <laughs> no, look, I, I think it's very much in keeping with how this book operates because it really is about spinning out ideas and seeing where they land. Um, I did think it was really interesting to read this book given, um, you know, the disaster that we're living through, particularly here in Victoria, obviously, and in many parts of the world and Australia. Uh, nursing homes have been particularly affected by this virus and uh, the people in it have been very much overrepresented in the death tolls that we've been seeing it it's kind of really uh, we're really interrogating the way that we think of um of older people and um and where their place is in society and how um maybe we're not looking after things like interior lives or even physical health um so i think that it's a really timely time to kind of uh to keep examining ourselves as we get older um after all you know uh, keeping our mind fresh and, and looking at the world and looking at ourselves constantly are an important thing that we need to do to make sure that that, um, that we reflect that on the greater world. Uh, so, Robert Desai, thank you so much uh, for joining me today to talk about this book. It's been my pleasure, Mel. Thank you. Thank you. That was author Robert Desai uh, talking about the time of our lives uh, growing older well. Um, I am going to be uh, talking very shortly to the... Uh, director of the Feminist uh, Writers Festival uh, about that um, that event and uh, some of the interesting things that they've got going on in the lead up to it. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. The FWF 2020, the Feminist Writers Festival, kicks off on the 14th of November and runs in two streams, thinkings with essays and live events tackling four big questions for contemporary feminism, the politics of health, our culture of violence, being feminist, staying bold and intersections of the law. And then there's FWF Talks, a free podcast conversation series covering topics like where is the queer writing and 
feminism for all. Joining me now to talk about this uh, festival is the program director, Nikki Anderson. Nikki, welcome to Backstory. Thank you so much, Mel. Thanks for having me. Now, this is... I'm actually really excited about this event, but I kind of love that there's actually uh, Writers' Festival homework uh, that you can be doing in the lead-up to the event. I've been calling it that in my head where I'm like, this is the greatest. Um, There's going to be a a series of essays that you're putting out now um, in the lead-up to the event on the 14th of November. Can you talk a little bit about that and the Think In series? Yeah, sure. Look, we've always um, wanted to have, and I think we've always delivered quite sort of big, juicy kind of sessions. We're not just about like a couple of big names and watching them up on the stage. We really want things to be interactive and discursive and um, for FWF events to be a real sort of gathering and and networking place. And I guess with, um, you know, COVID and these times, we've sort of had to rethink how we can do that because we won't be having everyone in the same room. And so we just thought to extend things and, yeah, just to make them even more comprehensive, we'll give people a bit of pre-reading. So we're calling it pre-reading rather than homework. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and I know you're very conscientious <laughs> I now. I do so. like a bit of homework. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> but we're all a bit the same. But, yeah, we just thought to kind of extend the conversations that will be happening at the virtual events and um, give people some context and also a bit of sort of, um, yeah, some stuff to mull over before they get to the event. So we'll be doing a bit of a call out for questions. So people who've bought their tickets to the Thinkins, they'll get their essays, they can read them with, you know, a good month kind of before the actual events. And, um, yeah, then they can sort of submit questions that can shape the panels a little bit and then also can ask, you know, video questions during the actual um, session. So I guess, yeah, we're just trying to create as deep an experience as possible. And I guess also it's a bit of a way of safeguarding against a bit of the virtual event fatigue so that if people are feeling, oh, I can't do another Zoom event, then they're getting something anyway. They're getting some really good, um, yeah, in-depth content about yeah, those big issues that you um, mentioned as your intro. Yeah, I really love this because I think, um, you know, obviously these festivals very much are about engaging with ideas. Um, they're framed as writers' festivals because obviously the people People who are appearing on panels are writers, but there are ideas festivals as well. And those long form essays are really a place to, to tease these things out. I, I would like you to talk maybe a, about a couple of the um, of the events. I, I'm really actually quite excited yeah. about the, the Think In series because it really does look like it's going in depth into a number of really important ones. I think the politics mm. of health is one that we really do have to at least touch on in these times. Yeah. Absolutely. And look, I don't, you know, we sort of, yeah, these are all topics that we had sort of come up with pre-COVID. There's sort of a lot of the themes that we're always dealing with, whatever we're doing at FWF, whether it's our publishing or the stuff we're interacting with on socials or the books that we're reading, our events. Um, And we did a programming uh, or an audience survey late last year to try and sort of shape how this festival would look. And health, yeah, always comes up as a really big one for for women and non-binary people, so our kind of audience and communities. So... Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how much um, that panel does go in into COVID. And I think, you know, it wasn't premised around that, but I, I definitely think what we want to look at 
with that is a bit about, um, you know, who has access to health and who's impacted by health. So at the moment, you know, obviously it's, you know, lower pay, obviously health professionals, but then also all the people who, um, you know, support our health system and have to go to work and are really doing that really hard labour in um, health sites. So I think that will um, definitely come up, um, you know, also as a, I guess, a sort of... um, you know, inequality, social justice kind of um, way. And it's interesting, actually, that a lot of the sessions, even though they've got these very sort of discrete kind of titles, they do cross over quite a lot. So when you look at, you know, the politics of health, there's also, you know, violence comes into that and then that crosses over with our culture of violence panel and then that crosses over with our law panel. So it really is, um, you know, that intersectional kind of thinking Mm -hmm. that, um, yeah, we, we like to work quiz. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, that that is really what immediately came to mind when I was looking at this program, that in many ways, the the structure of the program reflects modern feminism, which is in, mm. by its very nature an intersexual, intersectional mm. question. It crosses over many uh, different perspectives, many different experiences and, um, and many different areas of life. Um, absolutely. You know, as well as obviously the questions of gender that uh, are really mm. being talked about at the heart of this Uh, which is incredibly important. I want to kind of move us across to uh, Mm. FWF Talks because that is another um, series that you're doing and it's sort of interesting how you're framing it as a podcast series. So can you talk Mm. a little bit about that? Yeah, well, we've really been wanting to do a podcast series or or podcasts for a while now and we we nearly always make our events, um, you know, into into podcasts, but they're really just, you know, event recordings. And I think they are, you know, really rich content in their own. But, we, yeah, we've been grappling with how do you do a podcast. There are so many out there. There are so many great ones out there. How do we lend our voice and our expertise and our curatorship to that? And so when we sort of were looking at this, you know, the kind of putting on a festival in these times, we thought, okay, we can't have, you know, 17 sessions on Zoom. I don't think anyone's going to be happy with that let's branch out and so the the podcast um idea that fwf talks really are just conversations between two kind of expert speakers with lived experience i think that's the other thing about our, our program is a lot of lived experience um you know in all of the the sessions and the and the writing and the speaking which is really really important i think when you're talking about contemporary feminism so yeah but with the fw talks you've got your your you two people having conversation and then with an interviewer who also obviously brings a lot of their own expertise and knowledge to it and we went for short form podcasts so around sort of the 30-minute mark because we kind of think that's quite a sweet spot in terms of, mm. you know, listening. And again, we just looked at the topics that we're really interested in and that, you know, again, came up from our community. So, you know, let's talk about queer writing and where is that happening? And it's happening in so many exciting spaces and, and not necessarily or not just in books. So there's like so many great like podcasts and and um, reading and watching recommendations in that. Ecofeminism was, um, or, you know, ecology and the environment is obviously a really big topic at the moment and, and it intersects with feminism and, you know, women's place and matriarchy in really interesting kind of ways. So that's a really beautiful conversation. Um, Feisty but Friendly is 
our sort of take on how we have these conversations of difference within feminist and activist communities and the idea that we can have argument but we need to look at resolution and learning and that sort of thing. Um, and then Feminism for All, the fourth one, is about, yeah, accessibility and and the relevance of feminism, I guess, today and, and, and how people are coming at it from, you know, different life experiences, how it's relevant to them and how it does kind of cut across their other experiences and identities. So, yeah, and I, it's, it's been great for me personally because often when you work at a festival, mm. at an event, you don't get to see all of the sessions necessarily because you're too busy running around doing other things. So it's been so nice to listen to those and, and you know, help with the edits on those and, and get like a, a, a bit of a preview on those. And we were really lucky to get funding from the Beeson Family Foundation to make those free and available because I guess, yeah, when you're talking about feminism for all, we want to, you know, make as much as mm. we can accessible to people. So we sort of thought a free stream for everyone um, that, yeah, hopefully ignites a bit of conversation um, is a really good thing. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to Nikki Anderson, the director of the Feminist Writers Festival, about the program for FWF 2020, which is very exciting, involving think think-ins, uh, including essays and live events, and FWF Talks, a podcast series event. There's also this final section that I need to talk about, which is craftivism, yeah. um, which looks great. Uh, do you want to chat a little bit yeah. about that? Well, that's going to be our kind of fun end of the day, pop your champagne or, you know, you know, line up your um, Aperol spritz or whatever it is or your cup of tea, whatever you need at the end of the day. Um, and that's another free session and um, which is supported by Queen Victoria Women's Centre, um, our long-term um, venue support partners. We wanted to do something with them that sort of showcases the work of um, Queen Victoria Women's Centre and do something that was a bit um, fun and playful, obviously also about activism, but the sort of that sense that activism comes in so many different ways, and obviously art and craft um, has a real activist bent and has had for, you know, like a long, long time. When you talk about, you know, you can sort of think about banners for um, the suffragette movement and, you know, the pussy riot hats, you know, in the past few years. Um, so lots of those forms of really kind of political arts and crafts so um and that links in really nicely with this uh project that the queen victoria um women's center has a uh, resident a feminist in residence at the moment kate robinson and her project which has obviously had to change you know because of this year as well is called make a fuss and uh it's been a bit of a community um generated project of um people sending in craft sort of arts and arts projects about um, the things that they can no longer be silent about. So there's like a whole range of amazing stuff and I think that's launching next week. So this is sort of links in with that idea that we're, um, you know, and also nicely at the moment that a lot of people are at home, you know, focusing on arts and crafts because there's not much else to do when you're in lockdown and, and a diff it's a different way of channeling our sort of politics and ideas. So I think that's going to be a really fun um, free session to end off a day of, you know, really big kind of meaty, meaty topics. Yeah, so it's important to say, look, the, the the main kind of live events are all happening on the 14th of November, but there are things to access before that, including the the 
uh, FWF Talks podcast series, which we, you can hop on. Um, the dates that they're released um, yeah, are on the website Friday. from next Friday. Mm. Yeah, that's. Yeah. Look, I think it's really great. I'm, the more that I'm looking through things, the, the thing that I really love to see in um, in my kind of writers festival events that I attend is something that challenges me to kind mm. of rethink ideas on every topic um, that mm. that I'm considering and particularly feminism now really mm. does need these challenges and does need to have, um, you know, really considered discussion and conversation and argument included. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really happy to see such a kind of, um, you know, such a real feast of, a, of an event coming out during this very yeah. shutdown time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we need it. The, the more thinking and talking, the better. It can only put us in a better place, you know, post-COVID, I guess. Absolutely. Well, uh, Nikki, I would uh, love to uh, continue to discuss many of these things. Um, just again, it, are there any, is there any particular information people should have about purchasing tickets or things of that nature? Really, it's just um, going to our website, which is feministwritersfestival.com, and you can find the whole program there on, um, you know, a link off the homepage, and that'll lead you to all the booking links and all the, the salient dates, and obviously we're pretty easy to find on social media as well, so if you want sort of, um, yeah, extra info, updates, you know, speaker highlights, all that sort of stuff, um, yeah, socials and the website will be the best place to go. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining me today on Backstory. Thank you so much, Mel. It's been a pleasure. That was uh, Nikki Anderson, the director of the Feminist Writers Festival. And FWF 2020 uh, does kick off with live events on the 14th of November, but there's plenty happening in the lead up to that. Just go to feministwritersfestival.com for details. Well, that's uh, bringing us up very close to the end of the show. I would like to thank my guest, uh, Robert Desai, who joined us to talk about The Time of Our Lives, Growing Older Well, a book that's out now through Brio, and, of course, Nikki Anderson, who joined me just before to chat about FWF 2020, the Feminist Writers' Festival, which is uh, something that I am very much looking forward to. Uh, You can hop online and, and find out more about that. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.